Good morning and welcome to OSW Daily. Uh, very happy to have you with you with us this morning. If this is your first time coming across the channel, thank you. We hope you find this valuable. If you do, please uh, consider subscribing. Hit that like, hit that notification bell so you're alerted to all upcoming videos. Today's special guest is Greg Lipper. Greg is a global operational excellent and customer success expert. He's adept at change management, understanding organizational cultures, influencing key stakeholders, and inspiring large, diverse teams. He's also an expert in Six Sigma, outsourcing, offshoring, crisis management, procurement, turnarounds, and M&A. And while he's not doing that, he's also an author. So uh, before we further ado, I just want to welcome Greg Lippert to the show. Greg, how are you doing, sir? Great to have you with us this morning. Hey, Steve. Great to be here. So how does a man who looks as young as you do accomplish all that? <laughs> That's a lot, man. Yeah. That's a lot. Not so young as I look, and unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good for you, man. You must be doing something right. Yeah. Well, I'm fortunate to have uh, some good genes, I think. So I get a lot of got a lot of energy. Good man. Good man. Good man. So you know, we went through your professional, but let tell, tell that's that's sort of what what I know about you. But what how would you describe Greg Lipper? Yeah. So uh, I actually grew up in Montreal, Canada, and I've lived in a few different countries, and uh, so I I consider myself. You know, I got into the whole global arena not quite by accident. I think I uh, I was actually born in the U.S. and spent my first six months of my existence here before I uh, moved back to moved back to Canada. So uh, I consider myself an international citizen. Uh, I spent a lot of time, both personally and professionally, in different locations, and uh, I'm always fascinated by different cultures, how people. I'm fascinated by the differences. I'm also fascinated by the commonalities. We we all have a lot more in common than uh, we might think at, at first glance. No, no, that's good, and it's good. And it's I actually didn't realize, but actually, when I was reading one of your your articles, I actually came across you're in the military as well. Uh, what sort of experience did that give you? Yeah, so I uh, one of the countries I lived in uh, quite a while ago was Israel, and I joined uh, the, the the military there as part of uh, integration into, into society. And, and I would say uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience by any means. I was in a combat unit, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, I'd like to say I got a PhD in psychology. I uh, got to understand how people work, how people think, uh, how, how people come together, uh, how people act under, under pressure. Uh, I got to know myself very well. Uh, and so that's, I would say a day doesn't go by when I don't, uh, get some benefit in terms of just how I look at life. And, uh, I always manage to keep perspective as well. I always say, uh, if no one's shooting at you, you're not having that bad a day. So try to keep perspective in life. No, that's great. That's great. So, uh, and what's, what's lockdown been for you and your family? How, how, how have things been? We've been very fortunate. Uh, we we have a, a second home out in Western Mass where we've been able to uh, to be out in nature and in the woods, and uh, and so we're one of the very fortunate people. And frankly, the the, the, the lockdown, the pandemic, has shed a light on uh, frankly the inequality that exists in this in this world. And uh, uh, I know there's a lot of people who aren't doing as well. And so we try to uh, we've helped out in different ways with mutual aid. Uh, um, group in our in our local neighborhood and other ways to help those less fortunate, but it's it's been uh, we've we've been fortunate to um, to be doing okay. And no, that's great. I'm gl I'm glad to hear. And uh, I, I've seen your I've seen the background of where 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 we had a call the other day, and it looked beautiful, man. So I, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you and the family are doing well. Um, now, obviously, through your career, we went through the list of things that you've experienced, and you've done that with some remarkable companies. 
Um, maybe you would tell the audience a little bit about some of those companies and what you did there. Yeah, sure. So I've worked at some pretty large um, firms like Fidelity Investments, uh, Staples, NASDAQ, and, and others. And one of the common themes is uh, I seem to have always gotten assigned some of the harder projects. I'm not quite sure why that is. Uh, and uh, and over time, I gravitated more towards global projects, and that's where I developed expertise. So uh, I have spent a lot of time in very, very complex service operation environments, both on the service delivery and on the IT side of things. Uh, and typically, I've worked with very, very demanding customers. They can sometimes be internal customers, like your CFO, CEO. They can be external customers. Um, some Many of my clients have been Fortune 50, even Fortune 10 companies, a lot of household brand names you've heard of. And I think the common denominator, whether you're talking about the, uh, the CEO of, of your firm or whether you're talking about a Fortune 10 company, is uh, the bar keeps getting raised. They keep wanting uh, faster service, better service, innovation, uh, higher quality, and they want it all at, at, the, at a lower cost. So if you're going to do that effectively and if you're going to have a, an, um, an engaged workforce behind you, uh, then you're going to have to figure out how to innovate, right? You're going to have to figure out how to bring tools and processes uh, and competencies to the table in order to deliver uh, on that customer expectation in a way that also doesn't burn out your employees and, and gets them motivated and engaged. And, and one tool you've relied on through the, everything you do is Six Sigma. I mean, wh- how did that come to you? Or what what sort of uh, motivated you to really step into that? Because I know you, it's a, you believe in it massively. So I had a great mentor and, and boss back in early in my Fidelity days, a guy named Mike Slovak, who was also ex-military, by the way, U.S. military. And he introduced Six Sigma to uh, to the to the workplace investing group at Fidelity, where I where I worked, and I and I owe him a debt of gratitude because uh, I I really gra- latched onto it and I enjoyed I enjoyed the training. I also enjoyed sponsoring projects. Um, there are different tools you can use to drive improvement. What I love about Six Sigma, it's not a necessarily a, a simple tool. There's a lot of complexity behind it, but the principles are are pretty simple. And the, and the first principle is VOC, voice of customer. You, you, you think about your customer value streams. You, you think about who are your customers and what do they value. And that sort of switches you know, the lens, the, the frame from internal to external. Because we tend in our, in, in inside our bubbles, right, our organizations and our processes, we tend to be very, very internally focused on, I got to get this done, uh, you know, I'm dealing with this issue, that issue, I have this constraint. And to be able to actually think out of the box and think innovatively, it really, really helps to just to step back and say, well, what is my customer paying for? What do they value? And so that's the first reason. And the second reason, it has a pretty rigorous methodology. And if you follow the methodology, you're going to get to a significant improvement. So it forces, you know, one of the things I've done in brain, I see in brainstorming often is people raise their hands immediately to, 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 to solutions. Uh, they go from problem statement to solution in about 10 seconds. And Six Sigma forces you to slow down and go through some steps so that you're actually going to achieve, get to solutions that are going to be high, high impact. 
Mm. And, and and I know you you rule this out in, in pretty much everywhere you go. So it's uh, I know you're a big believer, as I mentioned. And uh, obviously, there's there's many things that we're going to talk about that as we go through some of the content that you've published uh, recently. I do want to touch on one piece of content you did publish, and it was a letter you wrote, an open letter to your kids. And there was a, a quote you used in there. Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning how to dance in the rain. It's a Vivian Green um, quote. What, what, what triggered you to write that? So early on in the pandemic, I mean, this pandemic has obviously been a um, once in a lifetime seminal event for us. And I think about my kids. Uh, we have four kids uh, ranging in age from uh, from 15 to 26. And as much as it impacts us, right, this is really impacting them, right? Think about the stage of life that they're in and what they might otherwise be doing and how much, if you think about the things that impacted you when you were 19 years old, that you know, stay with you and you remember like they were yesterday. So that's going to impact them in ways that uh, is going to be a little different for you and you and me. And uh, I just wanted to reach out to them with with a little words of, you know, partly it's reassurance and partly to understand that this is this is going to be a long haul. Uh, and 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 also partly to understand that, you know, again, one of the things I learned in the military is is uh, you know, adversity is not, you know, you don't say, gee, my, my life would be great if not for X, Y, and Z. You know, our lives are shaped by the adversities and challenges and how we, how we address them. And uh, this is just one more for them that they're going to be able to, uh, maybe in some ways, the silver lining is they will learn and grow from this. And there will be an opportunity for them to uh, have a life after this that has been shaped in hopefully in some positive ways by by the learnings from it. No, that's great. And I think there's lessons there for everybody because there's certain things that I sort of read and I reflected on for my own personal self as well. So so thank you for doing that. I appreciate you sharing that with, with everybody. And folks, if you're interested in any of the content we're talking about today, there are links below that you can sort of click on and actually go and take a look. And there's links to, to Greg's website as well. Um, and, you know, last week you published a, a piece of content, the, the pandemic's impact on future of, of remote work. And it sort of triggered me to reach out to you because there are so many things in there that you come with a tone that is very different to the voices that I often hear. Voices around workplace change management in who basically are dealing with real estate and real estate clients. And you come at it from a very different perspective. So I was really interested to hear and learn more about that. So I guess, you know, as I sort of read through it, I guess, you know, you do say it, remote work is here to stay. Why do you say that? Yeah. So um, so first of all, someone who's been working in the global arena my whole career, uh, you know, I, I came to that conclusion back in uh, right around Y2K is when I started getting into the global arena when we were doing a lot of work with India to get uh, prepared for Y2K. And so so I've spent the better part of 20 years um um, seeing that you can work globally, right? And, and so in my early days at Fidelity, before before the year 2000 in the 90s, um, a lot of managers felt, you know, all my associates have to be, you know, in, in the same, not in the same location, the same building, the same floor. I should be able to see them from my desk. And, uh, and, and we've proven over, over time that you can build up a global team and you can have teams in different locations around the world and you don't have to be co-located. So, so the same principles, I think, apply to remote work. I think the reason it's here to stay is, is really twofold. So first and foremost, uh, you now have more employers, more managers who are seeing that because they themselves have had to work from home. 
they haven't had a choice. They've had to have their employees work from home. And you know what? The work keeps getting done. Uh, you know, the work doesn't stop. And so it's sort of in a similar way in other in other aspects of our society where the pandemic has forced dramatic innovation change that wasn't otherwise going to happen. So a good example is telehealth, right? Where right. there was a lot of resistance on the part of doctors to doing telehealth. Well, my doctor will only see me on, on, on video now. And you know what? It's fine for the kind of, you know, regular checkups kind of thing that I need or uh, some of the questions. So we've sort of broken through some some taboos, if you will, or some some sacred cows or some some resistance uh, on the employer side of things. On the employee side of things, there's a lot more employees, frankly, who are who are saying, wow, uh, this is really good for me. Um, I don't have the cost of commuting. Uh, I, I can uh, it's very comfortable for me to be home. The time I save in going back and forth to the office, I can use for extracurricular activities, for my hobbies, for my family. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits that some employees uh, see, and for that reason, I think. Uh, now that said, I you know I'm very clear. I think in the article, I don't think we're going to stay in this kind of mode. Uh, remote work, and I write about this, right? Remote work doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work in all situations. Uh, and there, you can't have, in my view, if you're going to be high functioning, not well functioning, but you know, if you're going to be optimizing and you're going to be at the top of your game as as a firm, as an organization. You're going to need some level of people coming together, and there are a lot of roles, you know, sales being one of them, for example, where you know you want to have that face-to-face time. So we are going to return to the office, just not to the same extent as we did prior to uh, to the pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that there are challenges, and I just pull up on the screen here for folks. So you know, from taken from Greg's article on what some of those challenges are, and there's a couple of sort of. You know, I, I pulled out Greg as I sort of read through. Um, two was one was one workday routine. You noted it right. It's different for everybody. There are employees of high value, and basically they need that social interaction. And and the other one that sort of resonated with me was self motivation. Not that many people are talking about. You know, whenever we're not in the office, we have to self stimulate. We have to drive ourselves forward. We can't rely on other and team members to pull us. They can do it to a degree, but it's very different in a remote environment. Right, so I think this is, and funny you, you latched on those because we didn't talk about this beforehand. Those are the two I was gonna point out as maybe being the most interesting, right? Because some of these others are sort of, we, we, we do talk about. So the big change that's happened that I think employers have to recognize is prior to the pandemic, for the most part, the people who worked remote, there was a self-selection process there, right? I've been with the company for five years. I've proven myself as a high performer. I now have some reason I need to work from home I, because my spouse is we've been relocated or, or for some other reason. And, um, and, and I can get that job done, right? And, I, and I'm asking for this uh, as, as, um, as a privilege, really. And I'm going to make sure that I, can, that I can handle it, right? So we now move from that mode to a mode where right now, currently, it's almost everybody in the office uh, is, is working from home. Uh, people who otherwise wouldn't. And so these these last two that I listed are, are are really important to think about, both as for yourself, if you're there working from home, and if you're an employer with employees who are working from home. Number one is some of us get really, really, really uh, hooked on our workday routine. It's something that it's a, there's a flow and there's a, there's a value that we, we subscribe to. I'm getting dressed, I'm putting on a, 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 a shirt and jacket, I'm getting in the car, or I'm getting on the commute. I'm using that commute time for something that's a value. I figured out how to, I'm listening to audio tapes, I'm reading the newspaper, I'm catching up on email, I'm catching up on my sleep, uh, what have you. I'm, and and, and um, 
And that routine, we, we build in certain rituals into that routine. I go to the same coffee shop every day and I say hi to the same person who serves me my coffee and they, they know how I like it. Uh, I go to the gym or I do a happy hour with my friends on Thursday night. So all that's been broken, right? And uh, for people for whom that's going to be difficult, there are ways around that, right? You can do virtual happy hours. Uh, you, can, um, you can get uh, uh, gym buddies who, even though you're not going to the gym with them because maybe you're exercising at home or you're, you're jogging, you can set up uh, ways to, to track each other's progress so that you're motivated to still go to the gym even though you don't have a commute to go to. And then on the self-motivation front, um, so again, I'm, you know, as a Six Sigma guy, I look at metrics, right? And we have to remember that there's a normal distribution on just about everything in life, right? Which means most of us can probably figure out how to self-motivate at home. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's most, but it's not everybody. And some people really, really get motivated uh, and just work better, work faster, work, work smarter when they have the incentive of colleagues around them because they're in a, is a competitive spirit or their manager around them who they know is, is, is keeping an eye. And so some employees just aren't going aren't gonna to have necessarily the self-discipline um, to do what it takes to be you know, fully productive at home. And so the, the message on that really is that um, there are ways to remedy all those things, especially this day where we have apps and we have tools and we have we can have buddy systems. You can you know the same way you apply a mentor to a new hire at the office. Mm -hmm. You can apply a, you can as an employer as a manager you can you can assign a mentor to your struggling employee who's having trouble with self motivation. Uh, so there are ways to work with your employees to help them through that. I think the first thing is step is really just recognizing that these issues are potentially out there. And if you think again about that normal distribution that bell curve, you're if you have you know 30 employees on your team you're going to have a few. Uh, that that are in that outlier world that are going to need a, a little bit more of that help. Yeah, no, and you do provide seven steps, and I just pulled them up there on the screen, Greg. And, and there's two that really stood out to me, uh, and it's more of because it, it's it's actually a real it's really interesting. I love your your perspective. So four and five, you note assist struggling employees, but then you immediately let's say, but you need to assist struggling managers. So there's recognition that. There are those who are successful, irrespective of whether you're an employee, whether you're a manager in leadership. You know, th there are people who are going to have challenges, and what can the organization do to support those? Right. So, um, and the, actually, the struggling managers one is maybe a little more interesting because we don't always think about that, right? But if I'm a manager and now I'm, my employees are remote, whatever I did, whatever I learned how to be, and I'm a good manager, right? So let's just say I'm a, I'm a, I've been a, really recognized as a very good manager, but. The, the, the routines and rituals and processes that I learned over time to be a good manager were based on I can do one-on-ones in person, I can do team meetings in person, um, I, I have the support of my colleagues around me, uh, there could be I have a strong team lead that I work closely with who I rely on, and there's a lot of banter, a lot of discussion, and that's how I've learned to become a good manager. Well, if, if, if I now have my employees remote and dispersed, I don't necessarily have that skill set. And then again, for employers, they've got to recognize, again, that normal distribution. If you've got you know, 30 managers in an organization, you might have three, four, five, six who are struggling, right? You're gonna have that tail end. And that's fine, I mean, let's recognize it and let's help, let's help them through it um, with individualized assistance, with coaching, with even just understanding you know, how, to, how to find that balance between micromanagement and, uh, 
um, and, and absent, absentee management. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew a manager once way back who um, he had an empl- his, um, on Fridays, the empl- employees were allowed to, to work remote. And he wasn't very happy about that. He liked to have everybody with him. So his answer was he constantly had them on the me- instant messenger and he needed them to log in by like at 7.59 in the morning. They all had to be logged in and he, you know, they couldn't and, and sort of drove them crazy, frankly. They all wanted to leave the team. Uh, I didn't want to work for this guy. And this is because he, he hadn't figured out how to um, feel like he's in control, even though he doesn't actually see what they're doing every day, which is really, draw, which is a good segue to, you know, why it's, you know, if you have a way to measure productivity, yeah. maybe you don't have to have that, feel that need to be so in control of your remote workforce. That's a, it's a great segue into to sort of where, where 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 you go when you're in your article is you know measuring productivity has never been so important, and you know there are many people who believe you cannot measure productivity. Yeah. So well, I've done a lot of work uh, on productivity. In fact, I have a, a, an app that uh, I'm I'm close to finishing uh, building uh, around uh, my system for measuring productivity, and it's built into this app now. So. So I actually 100% do believe you can manage productivity uh, and measure productivity. I would say a couple things. First of all, we're talking about processes. Um, obviously, in manufacturing, you can measure productivity because manufacturers have been doing that since the 50s and 60s, and if not earlier. And in in what I call service operations, to the extent that a function can look like an operation, in the sense that you can have a process flow. Uh, you have uh, standard operating procedures. You have, you know, classroom training that you devote to that. So an obvious example might be a call center, but less obvious examples might be, uh, you know, uh, a reporting team uh, or a team doing research and analysis. So any kind of team where you have uh, logical steps and you have multiple employees doing similar kind of work, I think you actually can measure productivity. Um, one of the secrets to how to my system on that, though, is to understand, I'm going to use a Six Sigma term here, the difference between special cause variation and, and normal cause variation. I think this is where people get tripped up often in, in, in saying you can't measure productivity. So if you were going to measure, you know, let's just say I'm, I'm a research, I'm doing research and, and analysis on uh, customer, uh, complex customer issues. That's my job. So Greg's productivity today on Thursday you're right. You really the, the, measuring the my productivity on Thursday uh, is is going to be very very difficult, if not impossible, because of normal cause variation. In the normal cause of event, in the normal course of a month, something may happen on any given day. So on Tuesday, I ended up with an issue that took two hours of my time uh, in the workplace, or I had a personal issue. My um, uh, I had to go and run to take uh, my child to. To the doctor because they had an ear uh, an ear infection, uh, or I got stuck in traffic, or my car broke down. Right, so something happens uh, on Thursday to Greg that makes productivity measures uh, suspect. But you know what? If we measure my productivity from now till the end of the year through December, um, all those normal cause variations tend to wash out. And if there are still things that look like anomalies, we actually call call that special cause variation. And that means there's something going on, and that's one of the reasons I think it's so important to measure productivity, because then you find out something that isn't making sense. You find an aberration in your trends and say, wait a minute, this isn't making sense. Greg's been in, in, you know, in our team for five years. He knows this stuff really well, but we've been measuring his productivity September, October, November, December, and there's something that is making him look very unproductive. And when you dig deep into that, using some Six Sigma tools and other tools, 
you typically find, uh, not that Greg isn't doing a good job, but you actually find that there's some, there's some um, exception processing, there are some broken processes, there's something in our process workflows that's causing an unexpected or un, uh, unanticipated uh, productivity loss that we can actually correct through process improvement. And I'm, I'm one fascinated to see how your to see your app how it works and, and how you you plan to roll that out. I think that's going to be fascinating to see. You do use KPIs, so I mean, how should how should people who are trying to measure productivity or manage productivity within their teams, how should they view KPIs and creating them and then following and tracking them? And how long does it usually take to actually get to that state where you can make a true evaluation? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in a balanced scorecard, uh, literally, but also as just as conceptually or philosophically, right? So again, one of the critiques of measuring productivity is, well, what about quality? What about employee engagement? So that's where the balanced scorecard comes in, right? So if I'm measuring accuracy, quality, which is usually around accuracy and timeliness turnaround, if I'm measuring employee uh, employee KPIs, which are going to be my employee engagement scores and my surveys and my employee retention. Uh, if I'm measuring customer SAT, customers, my customer loyalty, which is going to be things like CSAT scores and NPS, net promoter scores, uh, then I can have a balanced scorecard where I'm looking at all these things. And then productivity is just one of my KPIs. So that's the first thing I would say. And quality is the most important one of those. You need a baseline quality measure, right? So, um, so, so because I could be very productive, but if I'm making a lot of mistakes, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. So you need to have a way to measure, measure quality. Um, and then the, the second thing is you need a little bit of time when you build your KPIs to, um, to burn them in and make sure you've set appropriate targets. So in, in the book I'm, I'm writing, um, I, I spent a fair amount of time on, on explaining how to set you know, your lower control limits, upper control limits, and your targets. And so it's very, very important to be really thoughtful and methodical about that. Um, you know, the worst thing a manager can do is say, you know, we're going to target 99% accuracy without any context around that. What's my baseline, historical baseline? What does voice of customers say? What are my competitors doing? Um, and, you know, frankly, 99% could be too high. It could also be too low. Um, you know, for an airline pilot, and, and if we're trying to measure, you know, no crashes, 99% uh, would be terrible. <laughs> no one wants 99%. Or for you know successful you know surgery. Uh, at the other on the other hand, if I'm if I'm running a call center and I'm trying to measure my first call resolution, my one and done rate, uh, or 99% uh, would probably be too high. Uh, or if I'm trying to answer calls in in 60 seconds uh, or 30, let's say 30 seconds, not answering 99% of my calls in 30 seconds all the time would probably be, would probably put me out of business. I'd be too expensive. So. So understanding your targets relative to um, relative to your business goals and relative to contextualizing them with a baseline data and uh, competitive data and then your customer needs um, is is what I would highly recommend. No, that's great. And and folks who are listening, we're, if, if we haven't scared Greg off today and he does come back, we hope to go through some of these iterations and, and learn a little bit more as Greg publishes a lot more of this content. But one thing before we finish up, Greg, I do want to touch on, you've created uh, an operational excellence framework. Um, what is that and, and how should people look at this and use this? Yeah, so my framework, uh, which is, um, I think you have a picture of that yeah, and it's also it's on, on my website. Yeah. Uh, it's basically a methodology that I've developed over the years 
And, and so if, if you're driving towards operational excellence, right, you want to improve um, the, the operational excellence of your organization, um, the framework I take is I say, first, let's understand the business, right? Again, I go back to that six sigma term, voice of customer, but also mission, vision, SWOT analysis, your business plan. And when we contextualize all that, we're able to build our KPIs. You go from understanding your business to, to setting what is it that I want to measure? Because again, quality is a nice term, but we can measure a hundred different things in quality. What are the three to five key quality measures that are most important to us relative to our business objectives? And then how do I set targets? And I talked a little bit about that. So once I've got my KPIs and I've decided what I'm going to measure, how I'm going to measure, what my targets are, then I need to bring in uh, I need to bring in competencies, I need to bring in tools, and I need to bring in governance to actually um, to actually implement all that, to execute on it successfully in a sustainable way. Uh, the competencies is actually probably the, some of the more, it, to me, the most interesting part of it because tools are sort of intuitive. All right, I need Six Sigma, I need, I need some kind of tool, right? Tools, I need some system tools. Uh, people bring in Salesforce to make their, their salespeople more, more efficient. So, so they're sort of intuitive that I need tools. It sort of should be somewhat intuitive that I need, uh, I need to have some governance around that so that I can um, make sure that I'm holding people accountable, make sure I have a framework for making decisions and reporting. Competencies are a little less um, uh, intuitive, if you will. And what I found is that um, you need to make sure that your leadership team has the right set of competencies and that the organizational culture within the organization that you're trying to change, where you're trying to drive the transformation, has uh, embraced some cultural attributes. So I talk, uh, I talk quite a bit about a four C's culture and I say, you know, your organization needs to have a culture that's of customer centricity, of continuous improvement, of candor and competitiveness. And I have reasons for all, all four of those. If we have time, I can go into them, but the notion I mean, just the first two should be pretty intuitive, right? That if you're not really customer focused, if you're not customer centric in, in how you think about everything you do, uh, you're probably going to fall back to either internal, you, there's a lot of internal pressure in an organization to do things a certain way or not to do things because of budgets, because of the way things were, because of internal politics. There's a lot of things that actually get in the way of servicing the customer. And if you're not sort of an evangelist, if you're not sort of a, and absolutely passionate around, you know what, we're gonna find our way around all those obstacles because at the end of the day, we have a customer that we need to service. Uh, you're not gonna get there. And similarly with continuous improvement. Continuous improvement, if you have a culture of continuous improvement where people actually believe in the benefit of continuous improvement, then you're gonna have the patience and time to go through all the steps necessary to make the right changes. And you're also gonna get less change resistance, right? And to me, uh, a culture of continuous improvement is one where people see it as a triple win. We're going to make have happier customers. We're going to have happier shareholders. We're going to have happier employees. No, and, and the, thank you for explaining that. I do, I do want to. You said candor. I'd love to know more about that. What, what, what was your? Yeah. What was so, um, so what I have found over the years is when you're driving business transformation, if you if you have so you've set your KPIs right, and you say okay, so. Turns out 99% was the right measure, and we we're at 95%. Well, to go to 95% to 99% is really hard to do, right? Or I I put in my productivity measures, and it turns out that I've got leakage everywhere. I've got productivity issues all over the place, which is typically what you find. Well, to actually affect the improvements that you need to improve your quality to 99% to 
to to optimize the productivity leakage that you have. It's really hard to do all of that. And it's especially hard to affect change that's going to benefit the customer and have sustained operational excellence if you can't be um, if you can't foster an environment of candor because you have to have real tough conversations. Like at the end of the day, something has to be changed, and change typically is going to be difficult for some some you know something's in place. We have to change that something, and it could be as simple as the old system is broken. And we have to go to a better system. Nobody, you think no one would be against that. Um, but you know what? Somebody built the old system. And maybe it isn't their fault it's broken because the environment's changed. We have more different, customer, different customer needs. But someone may feel very uh, uh, defensive or uh, um, wanting to protective, if you will, of that old system that they built. Or maybe their job depends on the old system. They're the expert on the old system because they built it. If we go to a better system, what are they going to do? So. Having the candor around it, we can solve all of those things, right? We can up, up train that person to a different job. We can uh, we can move them to a to a different role. We're not trying to blame them. There's always always ways to solve those things, but if we don't have the candor around what's going on, we're going to end up with uh, resistance that we we maybe is under the covers, uh, and we're going to suddenly find that our change effort isn't isn't uh, making the progress we were hoping it would. So, Greg, I mean, we've been way over time. Uh, I just wanted to continue. There's so many more questions I have, and hopefully we do get you back. But, folks, you know, if, if you have listened to Greg, obviously he knows what he's done. He's done this at organizations. He's now providing these services. He's going to be teaching us through a book. He's going to be publishing this very soon. So do go check out the links below. Do reach out to him on LinkedIn. Do subscribe. He has a, a publishers on LinkedIn, but also on his website as well. Again, links, links in the descriptions below. But, uh, Greg, look, thank you. I appreciate your time. I've learned a lot. I will go back and I will listen to this again because there's so many nuggets you've provided today. So look, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Um, my website is lippersolutions.com. So, so folks can see more on what I've been talking about there. And I really appreciate the time uh, and best of luck to you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you, folks.